As we read from the infallible, edifying, and precious Word of God, we turn first to Genesis chapter 19, and then we'll turn to Proverbs chapter 23. I realize that this is a startling text for a visiting pastor to take to a congregation, but it's been my goal to preach this sermon in every FRC and HRC, and no one has ever yet said to me afterwards, I wish you'd left it alone. This is a painful passage of the Word of God, Genesis 19, starting with verse 30. One man, after a very rare sermon on it, was heard to say to another as he walked out of church, these words are not fit to be read in public. I submit to you that they are, and I want with the Lord's help to prove that to you. So, this is the fifth sermon actually in a series that I did some years ago on the life of Lot. The title of the series was Warnings to the Church About Worldliness, and this is the last sermon in that series. It's Genesis chapter 19, beginning with verse 30. Then Lot went up out of Zoar and dwelt in the mountains, and his two daughters were with him. For he was afraid to dwell in Zoar, and he and his two daughters dwelt in a cave. Now the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is no man on the earth to come into us, as is the custom of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve the lineage of our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. It happened on the next day that the firstborn said to the younger, Indeed, I lay with my father last night. Let us make him drink wine tonight also, and you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve the lineage of our father. Then they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. And the younger she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the people of Ammon to this day. Then we turn to Proverbs chapter 23, starting with verse 29 till the end of the chapter, and this tells us the danger of being intoxicated with alcohol and the results. So Proverbs 23, starting with verse 29. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaints? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long at the wine. Those who go in search of mixed wine. Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. At the last It bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart will utter perverse things. Yes, you will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea or like one who lies at the top of the mast, saying, 
They have struck me, but I was not hurt. They have beaten me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake that I may seek another drink? Beloved congregation of the Lord, some years ago when I was living in Ontario the first time, I overheard outside an Avondale supermarket a teenager talking to some of his friends about his vacation. They had, of course, gone up north because that's what one does in Ontario. And they had with great difficulty persuaded this teenage boy to go with them, and he was telling his friends why he didn't want to go. And I quote, If there are no girls and no beer, I'm going home, even if I have to walk the whole way. That is the youth culture of modern-day Canada. That was also the youth culture of Sodom. Not just the youth, but everyone. And as we look now at these last words that the book of Genesis records about the life of Lot, I don't know about you, but at first glance when you read this or hear this read, you just think there's not a lot here for us. What human hand would ever put such things in the Bible? It makes us uncomfortable to read them in public or to read them at the dinner table when our children are sitting there. We, we dread the awkward questions or the awkward silence. To use an unhappy comparison, it sounds like a tabloid. I've never been tempted to read a tabloid, but when you're standing in the checkout line in the grocery store, you can't always avoid seeing their headlines, and it's all about scandals and the families of the life of the rich, the famous, and the powerful, promising salacious details and full-spread color photographs. And our text would seem to read like a tabloid. We came to church this morning to hear something edifying and uplifting. But there doesn't seem to be anything here that is edifying. And as I wrestled with the life of Lot, I was very tempted to skip it myself. That's why I do series, because it forces me to take texts that I would skip. And the commentators were not very helpful either. Until finally, in God's kind providence, I listened to a sermon on this text that showed how different this text is from the tabloids. We aren't given the details. There are no full spread color photographs. God speaks plainly so that we know what happened and we get His point. But there is nothing here to satisfy a peeping Tom or titillate a sinful curiosity and imagination. There is good news embedded within the words of this text. And that's why, as I give you my theme, I want the theme to tell you where we're going to end up. Lot's end, from incest to Christ. We see two things, abounding sin and superabounding grace. Our text picks up with Lot in the gates of Zoar, the little town in the valley, rescued by the magnified mercy of God, literally ripped out of Sodom just in time. He'd set his heart on materialism, and he'd lost it all. His home, his riches, 
his wife. The cost of his lingering, compromised, lukewarm life has been devastating. And in the last words of the Genesis about Lot, this is sad, pathetic life. We see the price tag of a compromised, half-hearted form of Christianity. What a warning beacon it is. But it isn't a hopeless warning. Sin will not have the last word in the life of Lot, though it will in the life of his daughters. 2 Peter 2 tells us something, something we might not have guessed if you just read Genesis. It tells us Lot was saved by the grace of God, that he is a monument to the capable, powerful, redeeming grace of the living God. And so we need to hear the warning and plumb the depths of this life with that mercy in mind. Verse 30 says that Lot didn't stay in the little town of Zoar very long. He pleaded back in verse 20 to be allowed to escape to that little city, even though he'd been commanded to go to the mountains by the angels, still waffling, still whining, still wanting the city life he lusted after, even in the face of the judgment of God, wanting to downsize his sin when what was needed was a radical change of direction. But when fire and brimstone, the volcanic eruption or whatever it was, shattered the wicked cities of the plain, Lot becomes uncomfortable in Zoar. Verse 30 says he's afraid to stay there. This city's no different than the ones who were destroyed. It might have less people in it, but it is every bit as committed to evil. Lot has finally had enough of wicked cities. Matthew Henry says it perceptively. It is well, he says, if disappointment in our way drives us at last to God's way. Now, God prefers to lead you than drive you, but He's so committed to the well-being of His people that if He has to drive you from your sins, He will. But the one thing Lot hasn't been cured of is his pride. In telling him to go to the mountains, the angels are all but telling him to go back to Abraham, who lived there. But that was too much for Lot. Perhaps he was ashamed of having mistreated his generous uncle. And it might seem like humility, just like the person who says, I'm too great a sinner to be saved by God, sounds humble, but it's not humble at all. It actually drips with extreme arrogance. It is pride, not wanting to admit you're wrong, not wanting to face people when you know you've been wrong. And even in the heart of a child of God, pride can be a destructive plague. Lot, go back to your uncle. Be part of the covenant community. Go where you can gain truth and godly friends and pure worship. Abraham's inheritance is undefiled. Lot made the wrong choice and he paid the price. Will he finally get honest with himself 
Lot, if you won't do it for your sake, do it for the sake of your girls. Are you mature enough when the Lord convicts you of a pattern of sin in your life to admit you're wrong? What do you do when God convicts you of your sin? Do you just try to downsize it? Or do you say, I need a change of direction? The sin in us wants to whisper, just downside, just minimize. That's good enough. I know because my heart tells me the same things. I've had enough experience now as a pastor to have seen several families in my ministry who were devastated by sin and worldliness, by a collapse. And as always, the price tag didn't become clear until the sudden catastrophe and utter collapse. The warning signs were ignored. The smaller sins, as we call them, were winked at. And then came disaster. That's how it is with worldliness. You can think even for some years, we're not doing all that bad. And then the sinkhole comes and it collapses and it caves in. Sometimes as parents, when we see this in our children, we need to humble ourselves and say, my family members simply upsized what I wrongly thought I could keep downsized. The sins of my children are the children of my sins by imitation or reaction. One father I know made sexually tinged jokes at the dinner table and then pretended to be surprised when his children acted on them and didn't want to see the connection. There was one. Lot leaves Zoar. He heads up to the mountains. He becomes a hermit in a cave by himself. And it's no surprise that mankind at its most primitive and backwards has been cave dwelling. It's as low as you can get. Now, don't think now of the caves you visit on vacation, complete with a tour guide, electric lights, a pipe organ installed, and ice cream in the gift shop. Think of a damp, lonely place, musty air is always an issue in a cave, mold, bats, rats, roaches, wild animals. He chose this rather than to rejoin Abraham. And it's not hard to imagine Lot's daughters tremendously resenting this change. They went from being city dwellers, from being the daughters of a town counselor to being cave dwellers. They went from having other young people to hang out with, now stuck with their gloomy old father. From wealth to great poverty, from being engaged to be married to being single and lonely. And their hopes of a family of their own are fading. Their biological clocks are ticking. And so one day these two sisters have a heart-to-heart sisterly chat, and as you listen to them, you realize you can take the girls out of Sodom. But that doesn't mean you've taken Sodom out of the girls. It's typically Sodomite language. It's all about me, me, give, want. I don't want to wait. They don't even talk about love and marriage. 
They speak crudely as if they're animals. They just want a man to come into them. That's how you talk about cattle in a feedlot, not how you talk about people made in the image of God. And in a real sodomite trick, they plot to seduce their father so they can preserve his family line. Incest, albeit a rare form of it. The disgusting betrayal of the sacred trust of love to abuse and use one of their own. Why would these girls do such a wicked thing? Often when a man abuses someone, it's because of twisted lust and desire. When a woman abuses someone, it's often an act of power. That is, using sexuality to get something else that you really want. And in this case, children. Why do they want kids? Well, isn't this what most women want? But their desire isn't spiritual. It isn't about the upbuilding of the kingdom of God or the anticipation of the coming of Messiah. Besides the fact that God puts motherly instincts in women, you need to know Canaanite culture. They thought the only way you live forever is through your children and descendants. They also didn't have social services and a pension system. And if you didn't have kids, who's going to take care of you in your old age? Who's going to give you a proper burial? Because the garbage dump was where burial of people without family took place and that was considered harmful to your afterlife in pagan religion. They want all these things. And they even pretend to make it about their dad lot. We're doing this for our dad. That's the sick language of abuse, the twisting and warping, the trying to justify the indefensible. They want this so badly, they're willing to exaggerate and make it up. There isn't a man in the earth, they say, who can give us children. What nonsense. They just left Zoar. Uncle Abraham lives with several hundred people, a day's walk away. The whole land is full of people. But they want children now. They're not willing to wait. They see no point in trusting God, even though they were led out of a burning city by the hand of angels. What a contrast Genesis 19 is to Genesis 16, Abraham and Sarah. They too, of course, had become impatient. Sarah gave Hagar, her servant, to Abraham as a surrogate mother. There's really nothing new under the sun. They'd been rebuked and corrected by God. They'd learned to wait on the Lord to be provided for. God is the one who gives life, who gives children to people whose bodies are dead from the point of view of childbearing. They wait on Him in faith and hope, and that will be rewarded in the next chapters. But these two sodomite daughters of Lot refuse to do so. They'd been led out of the city by God. They had a godly father who, though weak and compromised and foolish in many ways, Peter tells us, still daily grieved over sin and loved righteousness. And all of this did nothing to them. They wanted to just grab what they could get. And that is the youth culture, and not just the youth culture of our time. 
sex, drugs, rock and roll, which is actually a musical combination of both, if you read the literature of those who are developing modern music. Get what you want now. No self-control. If you want it, do it. And this rot is destroying our culture. Although you do find non-Christians too, shaking their heads, at least older ones. Think of one of the neighbors I had in Alberta who said to me once, I wish my daughter would show just a little bit of responsibility. She's in her 20s and all she thinks about is boys and alcohol. And I wish she had just a little self-control. You could see her making out with a different boy just about every night of the week in the parked car in her parents' driveway. A dirty world full of me and want and now. Full of heartbreak, sickening consequences. You've heard of compounding interest, right? And the bank that builds up. If you pay just the interest and let your debts mount, the compounding interest makes it bigger and bigger. And sin like this comes with compounding interest of shame and hard-heartedness and emptiness and loneliness and wretchedness and destruction. Young people, hear me now. I won't pretend to say that all of you are like this, but in every congregation there are some. You need to hear this. The choices you are going to make in the next five years are the most important choices in your entire life. What are you like? Are you children of our times or children of the living God? Do you think your youth is your own? Do you think your body, your weekends, your time are your own to do what you think is pleasing? Do you only think of me and want and now rather than the big picture? of Judgment Day? Do you tempt others? Do you try to drag them down with you down the slippery slope? Let's indulge in sin. Let's make it seem cute and funny and harmless. Let's egg each other on. Let's use our social media accounts to make sin seem attractive and pleasant and to tell each other, just do it. If that's you, You are already sliding down the slippery slope of sodomite behavior. It leads to the gutter. It makes the unthinkable normal. Our sodomite culture reveals its pleasure and power-hungry madness in so many ways. The weekends of partying, the sensual revealing dress, music, entertainment, advertising, dragging people down into the gutter, being a curse and a grief to others. All you have to do is work with someone who's lived that way for 10 years and has three kids with three women and spends his paycheck in all directions and still can't find a stable relationship. Of being a curse and grief to others. And so if your pastor or your parents warn you about these things, it's not because we're uptight and old-fashioned. It's because we care about your life and stability and happiness. Because we want you to have a stable, godly family life. And don't think, well, I can sow a few wild oats now and I'll settle down later. Because those wild oats will leave their mark in your life. Your life long.
Parents, the sins of Lot's daughters are the children of Lot's sins. They knew he would never agree to incest, and that speaks well to his righteousness, but they know a way around his conscience. You have to remember that in those days people drank wine because it was the only way to preserve juice or even, even milk had to be drunk pretty much the day it was milk because otherwise it would spoil. So people drank wine often with every meal. And they urge him and nudge him to fill his glass again and again till Lot is in a drunken haze and can't remember who he is or where he is. Now we know if a New Testament believer is repeatedly getting drunk, that as long as you do that, an unrepentant drunkard cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And it's tempting, of course, to impose the full light of the New Testament onto the shadows of the old. But yet they did know this. If we can just manipulate the circumstances, we can get him to do this to drown his sorrows in a bottle. This is why alcohol is such a toxic temptation. When you get drunk, your sense of right and wrong fades. It brings out the beast in you, whether you're the jolly drunk or the mean drunk. You say and do things that were there all along, but the brakes are taken away, and out it comes. And yes, people like alcohol because you feel good for the moment. You can forget your failures and your heartaches. It loosens your tongue. You can feel pleasure for a little while as if there are no consequences to anything in the world. But at what price? To quote our scripture reading from Proverbs, your eyes will see, the New King James says, strange things. The King James has strange women. Someone who's not your spouse. Your mouth will say perverse things. You become a fool. You say, I was beaten up because you were tripping and banging your head and body into various parts of the wall. I don't feel it. Listen to young people on a Monday morning at university. How was your weekend? Oh, I had a great weekend. I was so drunk I was puking all over the place. Ooh, that sounds fun. Nothing good ever happens when you're drunk. And if you think I'm exaggerating, then you should hear the heartbreaking stories I've heard. Young people, if you get drunk and go to parties, do you know how many young people I've wept with who have been violated while drunk at a party? Why do you think they want to get you drunk? You say and do things that harden your heart and shatter your life. And it isn't legalism, it isn't sourness, and it isn't fear-mongering to tell you these things. It's love. Why is the Bible so insistent about this? Because alcohol abuse is Satan's counterfeit of the work of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5.18, do not be drunk with wine in which is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. God has created you to find joy in Him. His Holy Spirit living in you gives you, in a permanent, lasting way in which you never need to be ashamed, all the phony, fake, short-term stuff the bottle can give you. Joy without a hangover, peace without a rude awakening, pleasure without regret. 
But Satan's copy drunkenness is, is a denial of, an abuse of, a slander of the Holy Spirit. You're making spirits in a bottle, your substitute Holy Spirit. What a shameful awakening Lot had when he discovered his two daughters were pregnant and he was the father of their children. These girls had forgotten to blush, to quote one of the prophets. One names her boy, son of my father, and the other, son of my relative. And every time Lot hears the words Moab and Ammon, he's reminded of what he's done. These two nations will harass, tempt, plague, and bring heartache to Israel for a thousand years. What agony this must have been to Lot, and yet there is a sense of justice too in which his sins are visited on his head. Earlier in Genesis 19, he had shouted to a lustful screaming mob that wanted to violate his guests, take my daughters and violate them instead. Calvin is right when he says, surely any father would rather die a thousand deaths than do such a thing. And now these daughters violate him. Lot fell into the occasional sin of drunkenness, and his daughter simply upsized what he wrongly thought he could keep small. If you adopt a pet dragon and feed it, it will become big enough to bite you in the end. You can't just say, look how cute, because it doesn't stay small. If he had just learned self-control as the fruit of the Holy Spirit, he wouldn't have to live with his shame like he does now. It's easy as parents to complain if one of your young people goes astray. But maybe first you should stop and get honest with yourself. Did they learn it from you? Did you have a casual attitude towards drunkenness? Did you tell stories about your youth that made it sound like, well, I really shouldn't do this, but actually it was kind of fun too, the good old days. Why are you then shocked and surprised at their behavior? And mothers, maybe you read and have a subscription to the fashion magazines and you tell yourself, I'm just doing it to get tips for my clothing and appearance then don't be surprised if your daughter reads it too and lives the sodomite lifestyle promoted in the same magazine. These are the final words about Lot in the book of Genesis. We don't know anything else about how he lived and died. We know the last words of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and David. But we aren't told about the last days or last words of Lot. What a gloomy deathbed. Jacob's life towards the end became brighter and his testimony became as strong as it had ever been. But Lot is like a battery flashlight that the batteries are almost worn down. Goes out with a bare glimmer. Maybe someone listening to this wants to say, where's the good news in this? You promised us edification. Where is it? How do we move from drunken incest to Jesus Christ? And maybe you say this because these warnings are uncomfortably close to home. Or maybe like Lot, you have been violated by others, whether incest in your home, being taken advantage of while drunk or not. 
And right now, if I were to stop, it would be enough to make you despair. But you need to see how this text, embedded as it is in the brokenness and shame of sin and being sinned against, moves from incest to Jesus Christ. There is abounding grace to be seen here, grace that is greater than all the sin and ugliness and heartache. And that's why this text is so worth preaching everywhere. And this is our second point and our last point, super abounding grace. The grace of God is all over this passage. You just need to see it. First, the warnings are evidence of the goodness of God. It is goodness when a power line that could kill the careless has a warning sign on it. It is goodness when you buy garden chemicals at Canadian Tire and it has a warning on there about what happens if you would drink this or rub it on your skin. It is kindness when you go to Niagara Falls and there are stone walls that keep you from slipping off the edge. If there were no other kindness and grace in this passage, this already would be great kindness. But there's more. Not just preventative grace, but redeeming and restoring grace. Can anything good come from the tabloid scenes of that cave? Did you pick it out? There's one little word in the darkness that's like a light. A word so easy to skip and miss and read over. Do you see it? The word Moab. Centuries after this tragic scene, there was a young woman from Moab who turns her back on her people and her gods and comes to the promised land to serve the God of Abraham. And she says to her mother-in-law, your people shall be my people and your God my God. Her name was Ruth. And she could trace her family tree to the unholy, ugly union between Lot and his daughter. And Ruth's great-grandson was a man named David who had Moabite blood in his veins, reaching back to the painful, sickening beginnings of Moab. And in the fullness of time, the great son of David came into this world, Jesus Christ the Savior, who saves sinners from themselves, from the misery, shame, brokenness, fear, tears, and needs of a fallen world. And you can go... And if Ancestry.com existed back then, you could click on there, you could click on the family tree of Jesus Christ, and it would take us back to this cave and to this ugly scene. Jesus Christ is born of the union of that cave. Doesn't that tell you that there is hope for the chief of sinners or for those who have been so deeply broken by the sins of others? Jesus Christ is unashamed to identify with such scenes. He made literally in the likeness of sinful flesh and yet without sin by the work of the Holy Spirit. A holy child who is not ashamed of his DNA, who has it recorded, who doesn't keep it the family secret that nobody gets to know, who puts it front and center in front of us this morning. Our society would say today, this is where abortion is a fundamental human right. Abort, abort, abort. But from it comes Jesus Christ. 
from such a shameful sick act so that the guilty, he shed his blood on the cross so that the guilty can be made righteous and the shamed and stained can be made whole. There's mercy for the chief of sinners who runs from sin and finds forgiveness in Christ. You can be the daughter of a righteous man and fall as deep as a woman can fall, but lower to come underneath you comes the grace of the chief of sinners. You can be the son of a righteous man and do the unthinkable, but there's grace and redemption for someone like you. Here with open arms, the Savior Jesus Christ welcomes the lowest, the most shamed. That's how violated people feel about themselves. Not that they have to, but they do. And with open arms, God is not ashamed to be called the God of Lot. And Jesus Christ is not ashamed to be the descendant of Lot. One of Charles Wesley's beautiful poems says it wonderfully. One of the commentators had just a line from it, and I Googled it, as you should do after the service yourself. And it captures for us what God would have us see in this sorry, sick, sin-choked passage, or I should say, this grace-soaked passage. The title is, Weary of Wandering from My God. Weary of wandering from my God, and now made willing to return, I hear and bow me to the rod. For thee, not without hope, I mourn. O Jesus, full of truth and grace, more full of grace than I of sin. Yet once again I seek thy face. Open thy arms and take me in, and freely my backslidings heal, and love the faithless sinner still. Thou knowest the way to bring me back, my fallen spirit to restore. Oh, for thy truth and mercy's sake, forgive and bid me sin no more. The ruins of my soul repair and make my heart a house of prayer. As I was reading the lyrics on the same website, there was a beautiful story about how God had used this in other people's lives. There was a chaplain in a prison and he was making his rounds and he saw a woman with a hymn book in her hands. And she handed it to him and she said, Sir, I'm so gripped by these words. And he read the opening lines, Weary of wandering from my God and now made willing to return. And his eyes filled with tears and he said to her, Are you weary of wandering from your God? Yes, sir, she said, I am. And then he had the privilege, it's the greatest privilege in the world, of pointing her to the full Redeemer, Jesus Christ, for whom no heartache and no sin is too big. But the proof of God's magnified mercy is also seen in other ways in this passage. We've seen what Lot did, and yes, he is responsible for his actions. Drunkenness doesn't insert anything into your heart that wasn't there all along. It doesn't make you less responsible for your actions. But God saved him from himself. I quote 2 Peter 2 verse 7. God delivered Lot, just Lot, from wicked Sodom. And you could say from himself too. Verse 9. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation. In spite of his sin, Lot was a believing child of God, saved by grace. God himself says so. I said we have no record of Lot's deathbed or his last words. But we do have a record of something he said after his death. 
in Revelation chapter 7, we find the record of Lot's words, and I say they're Lot's words because they're the words of every sinner saved by grace to sin no more who enters heaven. And I quote, I beheld a great multitude clothed with white robes, crying with a loud voice, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb. And here's the explanation. These came out of great tribulation. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night. And He who sits on the throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more and thirst no more. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne shall shepherd them. And God Himself shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Have you been taken advantage of and violated by someone else? And have you asked yourself many times, I know you have if that's you, because in God's kind providence, my whole ministry has unceasingly involved ministering to people who have been violated or who have been doing the violating. And I've sat with people like you and I've wept as I listened. And as I've heard you say things like, what good can ever come from the sorry story of my life? And the answer for you is the same as it was for Lot. Jesus Christ. That's why conversion is described in the New Testament like this. The Apostle Paul says, My little children for whom I labor in birth until Christ be formed in you. That's what good can come of it. Trust in Him and He will be your strength and refuge. And you can have His grace and character and love and truth poured into your heart day by day. Whether you're working through the consequences of your own sin and shame and brokenness, or of being sinned against. And as sinners, we tend to respond sinfully to being sinned against too. And He will be your companion and your Savior, more full of grace and truth than you of sin and need, until the day when you too have every last tear wiped from your eyes. There is one more gospel gift of good news to proclaim from this passage. You don't need to get drunk. You don't need the cheap counterfeit of Satan because the real thing is available in Jesus Christ. Remember the text from Ephesians. Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Jesus Christ has poured out His Holy Spirit to change stony hard hearts into tender broken hearts. The Holy Spirit is the overflowing fountain of joy and peace and love and hope and beautiful fruits like self-control about which you never need to be ashamed and never need to weep. It is joy without a hangover or regrets, peace without interruption or the hidden price tag. It's the love of God poured out in your heart. It's the freedom and blessed enjoyment of God's good gifts, especially sexuality and alcohol, in God's good time and measure and way. Do you see now why the church must preach these passages and not ignore them? Do you see now why this passage deserves 
to be heard. We don't need to turn from it in embarrassed silence like a tabloid. Those are just rags to titillate peeping toms and feed gossips and pervert the innocence into cynics. No, this is truth mixed with grace. This is victorious, triumphant truth spoken in love and with grace. Truth that saves and redeems and restores and heals and that makes you realize God knows me. And he took my story of brokenness into account and he made sure that there was redeeming mercy in the Bible just for someone like me. So that no matter what your story, you can sing with David, the descendant of these very caves, let not mercy be forgot for thy goodness sake, O Lord. And here then is answer. Just and good the Lord abides. He his way will sinners show. He the meek in justice guides, making them his way to know. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word doesn't avoid the hard topics. It doesn't avoid the heartbreak, the failure, the sin, the pain. It doesn't stop from opening the can of worms because there is a solution. When the ugliest can of worms is opened, there is a solution. There's a hope, there's a power, there's a grace in Jesus Christ that redeems and restores and makes all things new. We thank you for that redeeming grace that beams in the darkness of this text. All of us have sinned against you in various ways and all of us experience sexual brokenness in our lives in some way. None of us are born innocent, just sexually inexperienced. All of us are born broken. All of us, whether even it simply be thoughts, have things to repent of as we think of this passage. But we pray especially for those who have been violated by others and who feel like they've been given a life sentence of scar and heartache. Lord, will you through this passage heal them Fill them with joy and peace in believing. Make them to abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Wipe their tears from their eyes even this day that they may know God has provided a Savior who is just right for me. We pray for that person who's done the abusing and anyone who's viewed porn has done abusing because porn is the trafficking, victimization, and abuse of women. We pray for that person who's perhaps done the abusing in whatever form. And of such people too, Jesus Christ is willing to be the Savior. So will you use the grace and glory of this passage to cure our wandering hearts, to draw back the backsliding, to make us full of hope as we consider the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray for those parents listening who have children who have wandered into some of the brokenness of this passage and who have not returned. Have mercy on them, Lord. Remember your covenant. Draw them by your grace, spirit, and power so that where sin has abounded, grace might abound much more to the glory of your name. And we thank you for Jesus Christ. And that we have a whole Bible because it takes a whole Bible to begin to say everything that could be said about him. We thank you for him most of all, in Jesus' name, amen.